Welcome back to another episode of the Parenting Pathway Podcast. This is Pastor Dave Carl. I'm here with my good friend Nathan Kosurik, who is our the pastor of student ministries. He likes to be called the Grand Gupa of youth because he knows everything and um, would love to answer your questions. I'll give him your home number at the end of the episode here because he loves that kind of interaction. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Up close, up close and personal. Yeah, thanks. And, thanks yeah. Dave. And uh, with us today, I'm, I'm thrilled that we have Ron Archer with us today. Um, Ron has written, this is your, your second book? Uh, my 10th, but my That's second right? with Salem. Okay, so you're you've you've been typing for some time. Uh, yes, my first book came out in 1996. It's called Ron Archer on Teams, and uh, it was bought by Corporate America and did very well. Well, I didn't didn't know about that and those previous. Um, today we're we're here to talk about just one man can change the world. Amen. Ron. Ron is a world traveler, speaker, pastor, um, NFL chaplain. I understand he does amazing balloon animals. He he does it all. Blindfolded, actually. Blindfolded. <laughs> better, better yet. Ron, we're thrilled to have you with us today. And we've got a bunch of questions for you because we are going to solve this this issue today of how to get men into the purpose that God has for them. Very aspirational. Because we have a shortage of that. Oh, yes, we are in, Lord. In desperate need yes. of, of, of clarity and, um, and vision for, for men today. Amen. Amen. So, Nathan, I'm ready to ping pong back and forth with you. If you don't mind, I will toss out the first question for Ron. Yeah. Okay. So, what triggered you with the conviction about this book on manhood and fatherhood? Two major issues, and then a third personal narrative. Uh, the first issue is that I'm a biracial kid, uh, German heritage and Cuban. And uh, I've learned that 72% of all black babies born in the United States are born out of wedlock and are raised in a single parent home. Let that number wow. just sink in. Let that number just sink into your mind that almost two thirds of all children born in the black community are born out of wedlock and are raised in a single parent home. And we've learned that 80% of our social ills in the United States are a direct derivative of single parent homes, whether it be drug addiction, uh, abortion, uh, whether it be criminal activity, gang affiliation, high school dropout, you name it, 80% is caused by the single parent home. So that's the first issue. The second issue is being um, half white, is that uh, white middle-aged men in America in what is called the suicide built are committing suicide at a 30% higher rate than any other group in America. And wow. that's from the Midwest to the Rocky Mountains. And the number one state for white male suicide between the ages of 55 and 65 is the beautiful state of Montana. 
where men who are hardworking men, uh, blue collar farmers, ranchers, cowboys are blowing their brains out uh, all across this great fruited plain because they feel left behind, they feel disenfranchised, they're being blamed for everything. And not only that, in my research, uh, these men have worked hard and they have uh, sacrificed their bodies and they go to the doctor to get help for their backs and their necks and their knees and they get prescribed Oxycontin. And after three months of using it, they get hooked on heroin, they privately have an addictive lifestyle and the shame and the embarrassment causes suicidal Tendency. So those are the, 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 the things that have really pushed me to write about one man and how uh, men are being devalued. And then I grew up um, with a single mom who was 16 when she had me, didn't have a dad, understand my whole neighborhood in the ghetto of Cleveland. So many of my friends are either in jail or dead or drug addicted, didn't have fathers. And so uh, for all those three reasons, I wanted to write this book. Wow. That is that is hard to take in. It's uh, it's a brutal reality, but that's what we do. Right. We comfort the disturbed and we disturb the comfortable. That's what we have to do. Yeah. Nathan, you're up. Yeah. Um, Ron, I, I have to have to tell you something in confidence that normally I don't <laughs> share with Dave. I'm listening uh, now. Yeah, well, I'm in well, I'm here to mediate, please. Ron is listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to be uh, completely honest here and admit in front of Dave that I am a sports fan. And um, I love you anyway. (laughs) Dave Dave has a bias against sports fans. And, and, you know, I understand it because I know a lot of sports fans and and they are crazy, but... um, I, I saw that you are a, a, a former NFL chaplain speaker. Uh, currently still doing that, but doing it through Zoom. But yeah, I've been doing it since 1986 with the Cleveland Browns, with Bernie Kozar, wow. Marty Schottenheimer. I've worked with Pittsburgh. Matter of fact, I have four Super Bowl rings. Uh, I have one on today. I don't know if you guys can see it, but uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. It, nice. You know, I don't have one. <laughs> yet, Dave, yet. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you, obviously you're doing a great job with the, the Cleveland Browns because they're they're improving. Yes. You know, when you're in the cellar, only place you can go is up. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my, my question is sort of related yes. because okay. um, uh, a lot of us as guys uh, dream of, of greatness, you know, when we're when we're little boys. We, um, we don't usually pretend to be something obscure and mediocre and, and ordinary. Uh, we have dreams of, of heroic things. And, and I know um, uh, my own background is somewhat similar to yours. I was raised by a single mom in um, apartments in, in Houston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember one of my only outlets was, was sports. Uh, you know, I had a relationship with my dad, but I didn't live with him. Okay. And, and so in, in my mind and in the minds of a lot of my friends growing up, you know, we had a a certain definition of greatness and, um, and, you know, we, we carry that in 
to adulthood with us. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to that desire in, in our hearts as men and um, kind of define greatness in, in maybe uh, the, the healthiest definition of what that means and, and maybe where we get off track with that idea. And, um, and maybe we'll just kind of continue from there later in the conversation. Sure. Um, I think uh, when we are young, we uh, grow up with heroes, superheroes, and the whole narrative. That's one of the reasons why a lot of men are committing suicide, because their definition of greatness and their own lives do not line up. And so they feel they're less than, they feel as though they've let everybody down. They thought they put on the super cape and be the astronaut, would be the baseball star, and dreams die hard. And I think we can only truly find greatness. And Jesus said, if you try to find yourself, you will lose yourself. But if you lose yourself in me, you will find yourself. So I think alignment, assignment, and execution, aligning with the principles of God, of what manhood is, which is a servant leader, that greatness can be defined by how well you serve others and how you make other people better, whether it be your children or your spouse or your teammates. Uh, it is the power of humility. Now, now let, let, let me define humility. Hu- humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's low self-esteem. Humility is thinking less about yourself and more about others. And when you have this capacity to build up others and to have impact in their lives and to be a mentor and to be a coach and to be a person of influence, that's absolutely life-changing for you and the person that you're mentoring. I think also greatness is defined by the ability to make other people better. How many people uh, are you championing? For, like for me, I've, I love the story of two what I call unsung heroes in the Bible, hmm. that without them, you wouldn't have great people. You have Jonathan. Jonathan was the crown prince, the son of Saul, and David was the anointed uh, young man to be the next king. And if anybody should have been threatened by David, it wasn't Saul so much because he already was king, but it was Jonathan. He was next in line. But rather than feeling insecure or feeling jealous or feeling angry, he understood he had the privilege of being a kingmaker and poured his life into developing King David. And he's an unsung hero, but that's greatness. Then you have the uh, man Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't a writer of any books in the Bible. He's not well known as a church planter, but my goodness, without Barnabas, you wouldn't have Paul, who was called, he was so inspirational. He was such an influencer that he was called the brother of encouragement, and he helped Paul to be validated, and we call it loan credibility. He loaned his credibility to Paul, which allowed him to be acceptable by the brethren, and then He also restored John Mark, and John Mark, of course, was his nephew, and Paul rejected him, and he said, no, 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 John Mark has value, and without that, you wouldn't have the first gospel that was written historically by John Mark called the Gospel of Mark, and so these are great men because they made other people great, and that's part of it is being able to give from yourself to impact the head, hearts, hands, habits of humanity that uh, changes the habitat. The other uh, part of being uh, uh, great to me is abiding, 
uh, with 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 God, abiding in His presence, abiding. Uh, we we miss that in the Western culture. We really are human doings here. I am I'm only as good as what I can do, and God calls yeah. us to be like Him to be. And so abiding under his anointing, abiding through praise and worship, abide, abiding through study, the power of abiding makes you great. And it's very powerful mm. and very, very amazing. So uh, that's part of it for me. Yeah. Good, good stuff there, Ron. Um, I, Nathan and I have both been in ministry for a couple of decades at, at least here. And one of the things that has occurred to me particularly in a church setting yes. is we're asking kids, young men to become a godly man. Yes. And they have no idea what we're talking about. No clue. Like they, you know, I don't think I want to be Billy Graham. I don't, <laughs> you know, and that sounds like I'm giving up all of the fun stuff. Right. And, and they, what they have in their head, they patently want to avoid because We've not really described, I mean, if you saw a godly man in the wild, what would it look like? <laughs> so can you tell us what, what are we asking young men or middle-aged men to shoot for? Because I think this is very confusing. Yeah, I think it is uh, godliness, one, is reflecting the personality and the traits of the kingdom. And, and it comes down to being empowered, you know, the word empowerment is awfully uh, misunderstood as a PhD in organizational behavior. Uh, when I empower, I coach football, I coach little league football and I empower the team. And it means in, 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 in what God wants us to have. Number one, he wants us to understand authority. Uh, to much is given, much is required. You have authority over yourself. You have authority over your community. You have authority over your grades. You have authority over your attitude. You have an authority uh, over your choices. So you are empowered to be a person of exousia. That's the Greek word for authority. Secondly, God wants you to have input. That's why we pray. He wants you to be able to have a relationship with him and ask him questions. And what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be great? What does it mean, according to your standard, to be a person of influence? And then resources. Oh, my goodness. The most important thing in my life was um, uh, being a guy that didn't have a dad was finding a mentor. And my goodness, my pastor was a Marine and what a mentor he was to me. Uh, he's, he showed me what it meant to be a servant leader uh, and to find the most important thing, finding your passion. Uh, what, what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning? What would you do for free because you love it so much? And if you follow your passion, whatever it is God has called you to become and be able to do, you'll never starve. You'll never lack a following. You'll never uh, lack enjoyment because you love doing it. And so my pastor helped me to find my passion, which was to be a leader, a communicator, a writer, uh, understanding all these different things. So we, uh, you, you have to have the ability to articulate what is your passion? Why are you alive? Why do you exist? What are the things that you love doing? And half the battle with many men is that they never ask those questions. They never wow. follow that burning desire and uh, they can become like blind men in dark rooms chasing black cats or simply on that there confusing activity with accomplishment. And the last thing is accountability. Nobody can be great without accountability. 
Uh, people treasure what you measure. People inspect what you respect and the ability to build around you other men who will hold you accountable to your own standards and to the standards of God and who will give you feedback. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. Without it, we can't be great. So you get people around you who love you enough to be honest with you and to help you and to coach you and to mentor you and to correct you. That's where greatness comes from. Can I, I just, like um, can I just uh, uh, <clears throat> jump on this idea of, of passion? Because um, I can see even uh, uh, times in my own life where there's a lot of wind in my sails and I'm, I'm going after it, whatever that thing is. But, you know, it, it's like if, if I get just one degree off to the left, or, or one degree off to the right, you know, it's like the enemy loves to do this judo maneuver where we, we have all this momentum, we all have, we all have this passion, especially as, as young men, I, I remember having more energy <laughs> to, to pursue passions and, and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to do great things and big things for the Lord. But I wonder if you can talk about uh, ambition for a second. And, and when ambition is healthy and, and when we can uh, fan that, that flame of passion and, and be ambitious for the, the right things. But, but when does ambition become dangerous? Because we, sure. we know a lot of men here in our church community, uh, the, the North Dallas suburbs are, are full of men who are highly ambitious uh, very hardworking. Can you talk a little bit about healthy ambition versus sure. ambition? Well, first, let's talk about we all have egos, right? Every man that's alive has an ego, but there's two kinds of egos. One is edging God out. When you start to compromise your values, you start to make decisions that uh, undermine your own true character, when the end justifies the means, when you start to cut corners because you want to be worshipped, you want to be adored, you want to be God. And it, it reminds me of um, the story of Nimrod in Genesis when they wanted to build the Tower of Babel. And you go back to the motivation for doing it. He said, let's come together and make a name for ourselves. And that created the narcissistic self-destructive uh, behavior pattern when that happened. So that's one, edging God out. Rather than other ego is exalting God only. And so when I talk to football players and I talk to leaders around the world, uh, and they want to make decisions about business or careers, or I ask them three things real simple. Number one, how does it glorify God? Tell me in an elevator speech how this decision how this business, how this action, how this investment is going to give God glory. Number two, how will it edify other people? How will it bless? How will it encourage? How will it inspire being other person centered? How will it bless those around you, your family, your friends, your church, your community? How will it edify? Then lastly, how will it unify? How will it, will it be divisive? Will it tear people apart racially, ethnocentric, ideologically? Uh, from morals, how will it unify? So I asked them to tell me, how does it glorify? How does it edify? And how does it unify? Now, when you answer those questions and you get the clear vision, you got to understand it won't happen overnight that you're going to go through various iterations toward that particular goal or ambition or vision. So we use what is called VPR. Number one, 
you have to have a real clear sense of purpose that glorifies, edifies, and unifies. And to write that vision down, repeat it to yourself, why I exist and where I'm headed, where there is no vision of people soon perish. It's called your preferred future state that will uplift those around you, yourself, and the community. Secondly, you've got to be persistent. Uh, it won't happen tomorrow. It won't happen. I often tell people David was anointed to be king at age 12, and he may become king to age 30. Joseph had a dream at 17 to be the ruler of his family. It didn't happen until he was 30. Uh, Jesus announced he would be, the, you know, at 12 years old, he had this anointing over his life as the Messiah. It didn't happen until he was 30. So the ability to be persistent, to hang on, to push through, that's why you have to have, uh, for me, for example, when I got called to ministry, it's from Jeremiah chapter one, verse four and five. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. They tried to abort me three times. So having that sense of destiny, of why you're alive is critical and to hold on it because circumstances will change, but calling doesn't. And so you got to have vision. You got to have persistence. And thirdly, you have got to be resilient. You are going to fail. You are going to fall. You are going to be defeated. It's a part of the journey. And you must adapt the attitude that failure is never final. It's not the falling down, it's the staying down. When life knocks you down, land on your back, because if you can look up to God, you can get up in God. So never give up on God because God won't give up on you. So mm -hmm. let me tell you a true story. There was a man who was 65 years old, no teeth and bankrupt, rough place to be in life. And so to make money, he would cook at truck stops and truckers loved his food. And he realized that they would grow his business by, you know, being on CB radios, telling everybody where to go to get some good chow. And his business grew. But his trucker said, man, you know, you do this so well, you need to have your own restaurant. So he went to a bank and uh, he asked the banker, you know, truckers love my food. He said, I need money for business. And uh, the banker said to him, you are 65 and toothless. You even came and chewed your own chicken. No, you're not getting money from us. And this man was told 1,099 times no, but it didn't matter. He knew there was big, one big, gigantic yes waiting for him if he could endure, if he could keep vision, if he could be persistent and he could be resilient. And after the 1,099th time no, one banker who was also old like he was, had a connection with him, we call it affinity diagramming, gave him the money and the rest is history. And his name was Colonel Sanders. Hmm. Vision, persistence, resilience, exalting God only and asking how does it glorify? How does it edify? How does it unify? And then you're on your way. Hmm. That's good, thanks. Ron, I, I have spent quite a bit of time with, with men myself. I'm the family pastor here. Yes. And I have, I have recognized as a man is moving from disaster toward God, there's, that's his journey. Yes. His, his wife has a different journey than he's on. Yes. And I have seen women very, very confused and, and even in some ways bitter and resistant to her husband um, starting to become the man that she has actually prayed for for years. <laughs> yeah. But it's very confusing. And 
would I, I would love it if you would just talk a little bit the process that a, that a wife might go through, what she might see, and how I, I would like them to to have some milestones to know that this is that's a good sign, this is a bad sign. Please be patient, or be over over you know be thrilled that this is happening because mostly I've seen they're just kind of confused and off balance by it all and confused and off balance by what by his growth by his maturity yes. by his by his, okay. by his beginning to do things well she's okay. never seen this before yeah yeah well i can speak to this in a very personal way uh, my mother was a call girl when she was 16 that's how i was conceived uh, my grandfather was in prison um, for breaking a man's neck, for calling his white wife a nigger lover. Uh, my uncles were heroin addicts and our family was atheists. So I was the first person at age 12 to come to Christ. And it was not popular. It was not applauded. It was, it was, I was viewed as a Benedict Arnold. Uh, I mean, when I talk about atheism, they were anti-God, hated yeah. the church. My grandfather hated missionaries. He would always tell me this story. He said the white missionaries had the Bible, went to Africa. The Africans had the land. The white missionaries had the Bible. He told the uh, Africans to bow their heads in prayer. When they woke up from prayer, the white man had the land and they had the Bible. So that was what I was up against. I'm talking about hatred. Um, And so I got saved. And I realized early, uh, I became a uh, preacher at 16. And it wasn't doctrine. It wasn't dogma. It wasn't exegesis, hermeneutics, or homiletics. It was love. It was patience. It was the fruit of the spirit exuding from my life. They'll be the only thing that would convince them that God existed. And so I really studied what it meant to be a loving person what it meant to want the best for other people and allowing God to be God, but being patient, being kind, being good, being faithful, being humble, being self-disciplined. And so I made my first million dollars at 28 as a businessman. Uh, my, my, my church that I pastored at that age uh, went from 50 people to 500 in one year. And we planted three more after that. I was in the cover of the Wall Street Journal. And so my atheistic family began to see this transformation and uh, started asking questions. And so here are the things for a wife to look for, to be patient with, that a man of God will exude. Number one, he'll start being more present. Uh, Maybe he was preoccupied with the streets or with his friends or with his buddies, with the bowling league. He was just preoccupied. But now he understands his first responsibility as is his family. And that may be a bit off putting, like, go out, get away from me. I don't want you home. You're under my skirt too much. But he understands that God has given him the responsibility to be present. Being present is a sign of his commitment. Jesus says, be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. That's home. Then Judea, that's your uh, outside family. Then uh, Samaria, that's other races and then outermost parts of the world. So he's living out what God has put in to be a witness of God's glory and grace. Here's another thing you must understand. We did this through the Heritage Foundation, this research. When a child gets saved first, 
3.5% of the time, the entire family gets saved. When a mom gets saved first, 17% of the time, the family gets saved. When a man commits himself to God first, or even second, 93% of the time, the entire family gets saved. It's an amazing influence that he will have. So being present. Number two, he'll start being more attentive. He'll begin to ask questions. He'll tend to be more involved in your world and want to know your stories. It can be off-putting, but you know what? He's doing what God has called him to do, that he understands now. He's a thermostat and the family's a thermometer, that whatever he sets the tone, the family's going to reflect it. So he's trying to be like Jesus. Jesus always asks questions. Who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? What is the kingdom of God? And so he is using the Socratic methodology of love by asking, by being attentive. And he may want to read a book with you. He may, it, it may be like he's crowding your space, but he is being what the Holy Spirit has called him to be. Thirdly, be affirming. You're going to see his language change from being negative and downputting and critical to being uplifting and inspiring because he's being fed the word of God. He is being saturated by the presence of God. So his vocabulary, his word choice, his stories, his narratives are going to be biblical or going to be uplifting, going to be inspiring. So and, and allow him to grow into that space because it's authentically transformative. Um, and then uh, he's going to be consistent and that's what the really what, what the wife wants to see is this you know is this is this is this real is this just a phase so sometimes women can be afraid to open up our heart to a man right. after he's been yes. so brutal and say okay yes. this is another project this is another phase and so i'm going to hold my breath and wait and then when this wears off we, we get back to normal so she becomes an open-minded skeptic like like how the people view the apostle paul this man was a murderer he was a serial killer he all of a sudden he's a jesus guy yeah right sure we're, we're gonna wait this out uh, and so, so just allow him to show consistency. And then lastly, commitment. Uh, you're going to see um, a commitment to other men, to fellowship, to Bible study, uh, commitment to sobriety, a commitment to being uh, uh, responsible and paying the bills. And after you realize this is real, and that may take six months to truly believe that this transformation is authentic then you'll start to enjoy the benefits of having a responsible, accountable, loving, praying, fasting man of God. So you know what, woman, many times you've, you've had to tow, carry things all your life. Now you get to flow. Now it's the wind of the Holy Spirit at your back. And you know what? Enjoy it. Nice. Ron, um, I want to I piggyback on, on some of what you just said there in regards to... Um, Let's say rather than than a husband wife relationship, uh, maybe more about a, a friendship kind of relationship. And let's say that you're you're walking alongside a, a, a wounded man. Your 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 friend is is just hopeless. He's in that he's in that dark place, uh, and and maybe it has to do something with his own wounded. Uh, spirit from his relationship with his own father, or, or maybe it, it came from his own personal failure, uh, something that he's done that he, he never imagined he would do. He's disappointed. He, he's run up against his own limitations. How, how can we help other men who are wounded and, and feeling hopeless? 
You know, one of my favorite movies that my son and I uh, loved to watch together when he was young, he's a military officer now, it was The Lion King. Because The Lion King is all about woundedness, all about abandonment. You have this young lion named uh, Simba, and his father dies. And uh, he is blamed for the death of his father by his uncle. And he runs away from responsibility. He runs away. He feels like a failure. He feels like he's let the entire tribe down. And he learns a Swahili word, akuna matata, which means no worries. Just forget about it. Drive on. And it's not until a Rafiki shows up. Ah, what's that? Again, I lived in Africa for three years. Rafiki is a Swahili word for friend and mentor. And Rafiki was the baboon who showed up and, and, and walked, along, walked alongside of Simba and reminded him of the kind of man that he sees in him. You know, one of the things that we often miss about God is how God speaks to men. Remember when Abraham um, was lying about Sarah being his uh, sister and, mm-hmm. and basically letting other men have her, first Pharaoh, then Abimelech. And, you know, in my neighborhood, when a man lets his wife have sex with other men for money, we call that pimping. Mm-hmm. So, we, <laughs> so yeah. Abraham was acting like a pimp from my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But yet the last time he was doing this was with a guy named Abimelech. And God spoke to this guy in a dream and said, if you touch this woman, I'm going to destroy every womb in your, in your, in your uh, nation. And Abimelech was like, well, I gave him money and land and cows and cattle and sheep. What did I do wrong? And God said, well, that's not this man's sister. It's his wife. He said, I didn't know. He said, well, you know now. So <laughs> he said, now give her back. Now, 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 here's the part I love. God has a sense of humor. So Abraham cons him. Abraham takes his money. Abraham lies to him. And then God says, go to Abraham and let him pray for you. <laughs> and, here, and, and Hold on. And God says, because he is my prophet. He wasn't acting like a prophet. He didn't look like a prophet. He didn't talk like a prophet. But God saw him in his future preferred state complete. And eventually, Abraham, in this time-space continuum, lived up to the word when he had to go sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. He said to his um, servants, me and the boy have to go up to sacrifice, knowing he had to kill Isaac. But here's a prophetic word he gave them. But we shall return. I don't know how God, how God's going to do it. I don't know what God, he may resurrect him, but he said he, we, we will return. So part of our job with this broken, wounded man is be a Rafiki. Remind him of who he is. Remind him of the greatness that's within him. Remind, just keep pouring in affirmations, positive language, and be loving and be there. And don't be like Job's friend, right? Judgmental. Okay, Job, what did you do? Why did God take everything from you? We don't need that. We need men who will walk around other men and be air and be uplifting and be encouraging and be present and be non-judgmental and keep speaking life and praying and being present and being attentive and being affirming and being committed to that process. And we've learned from our research when I worked with President Bush on the power of mentoring. If we spend one hour a week with another man pouring into him love, affirmation, consistency, commitment, and do that for a week, every for, for 52 weeks, the head, hearts, hands, habits, and humanity of that man is transformed forever. 
We all need mentors. We all need people who will walk the walk, talk the talk, show up, be present, and allow you to be human, allow you to tell their stories, uh, share with them your journey, uh, share with them where you came from, how you overcame an addiction, how you overcame pornography, how you overcame alcoholism. Be transparent. We cannot heal what we don't reveal. Ron, I've talked with a lot of men and there seems to be a, if, a frustration, if not outright anger about the previous generation. I, I think most of us know we, we don't know how to find our way through this jungle. We're just, we're just crashing into trees. We mm-hmm. don't know what direction to go in. Where are the men? Where are the guys that could help us? And I, I think I have come to conclude that most guys don't feel like they're ready to be a mentor. They, they, they feel like they've got to become a Yoda or something, and they're not. I, I think the responsibility for a mentor-mentee relationship is on the young man to go, to go find a man that he admires and just think, I, he's got something I need. Yes. And I was, I was waiting for some guy to come up to me and say, Hey there, young man, I see a lot of me and you, and I'd like to spend some time. And that never happened. Okay. I think the responsibility is on the younger man. Okay. What, what would you say? Um, when, when King David became King in second Samuel, Uh, chapter nine, he says in the first verse, who is left from the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to for Jonathan's sake. David didn't wait for one of the relatives of Saul to come to him. He inquired and a guy named Ziba, who was a servant under Saul said, there's one son left, but he's a, he's a paraplegic. Uh, his name is Mephibosheth, which means bearer of shame. And he's in the land of Lodabar, which is the land of, of cursed um, desert. And David said, go fetch him. Bring him to me. And they went out and they got Mephibosheth and they brought him before David. And he says an amazing thing when he comes before David. He says, why would you care about a dead dog like me? And that's profound because dog was considered to be like a big rat in those days, mangy, ran in packs. And he's saying, not only am I a dog, but I have no hope. I have no future. So part of it is asking God, like David said, is there anybody I can mentor? Lord, bring to me, bring to me the young men, bring to me the situations. And, you know, I coach Little League football and that's how I mentor young men and women. Uh, I did it in the Bahamas. I did it in Africa. I did it in Europe. I do it in America. And it's a great place for me to share uh, the principles of leadership. So we do have to make ourselves available and we have to pray for God. And he will he will bring us. God says the heart of the king is in the heart is in the hand of the Lord and and putting ourselves in places where we can let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. So I do believe about your greatest ability is your availability and being available to be a mentor. You never know how God will use you and make yourself available. I think that's very important. Uh, and, and it's called the law of attraction. 
people will come. This is what I've learned about how God uses men. Every man that is born of God has a mission. Whether it is Abraham starting the nation of Israel, whether it is Joseph saving his family, whether it's Noah building an ark, whether it's Paul saving the Gentiles, every man has a mission. And once you understand your mission, which typically comes from your pain, your pain becomes your purpose. Your misery becomes your ministry, uh, your setbacks, your comebacks. And so then God gives you a message uh, to talk about that mission. And we know what a message is, right? Mess with age on it. So it's not some great, <laughs> profound, deep theological disposition. It is what God brought you through. Mess with age on it becomes your message. So God gives you a message. Then he, then he gives you a mission. Then he gives you a method. And his method is, if you want friends, be friendly. You know, be available. Uh, be uh, uh, hospitable. Like I have a football uh, gathering in my house for about 12 men every Sunday after and these men who, who may never go to church will come to the football and we have food and then we have uh, a question and answer period about life about marriage about finances and man they love it it's, it's informal leather chairs we sit back pizza popcorn whatever and then after the game is over we talk about life and uh, it's an amazing ministry I do that with uh, football coaches as well so availability uh, is absolutely key to being uh, a person of influence. And uh, Jesus, he didn't wait for his disciples to come to him. He went out and he got them. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He went to go get them. God didn't just wait for people to show up. He went and got, he went to Abraham and said, leave your mother and father and follow me. Uh, he, had, he gave Joseph a dream to uh, see how he would save his family. He sent Samuel to David uh, to anoint him as the next king. So I think we, if we take Jesus and God as our model, they didn't wait for the people to come to them. God went to Noah and said, build the ark. So I think we have to be available and accessible for God to work through us to be uh, a mentor. And a mentor means half the time. Let me tell you this. When I was a young pastor, I hated hospital visits. I hated them because I was 23 years old. I didn't have any life experience. What do I say to these old people who are sick? And so I, I would spend, rack my brain. Okay, what scripture can I use? And what story? And I just, and so one day I just, I got so tired. I just showed up and I, I didn't have nothing prepared. And the old lady who was in the hospital said, I'm so glad that you just came because your presence is the gift that you cared enough to show up. Uh, last story about this. Uh, my son, who is now a military officer, he's a cyber intelligence, cyber security. He was on Air Force One with me when he was 10. And so he's gone all over the world with me to Africa, to Europe, to the, the Caribbean, to the Dominican Republic, you name it. So he was in Japan stationed. I went to go visit with him and the grandkids. And I said, son, of all the things we've done together, submarines and Air Force One and being on television, what did you really enjoy the most? What really impacted you? And I was going to, you know, I was going to say, I thought he would say the trip to Israel or going to Africa. And he said, you want the truth? I said, yeah, man. He said, when you would come home, grab a football, take me outside and play toss with me. I had you all to myself. It was just me and you. And we could talk about anything as father and son. That was the most important thing to me, was a football in me and you. 
I said, I could have saved so much money, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so listen, so I'm in Japan, Okinawa with him. I said, really? He said, yeah, pops. So we got a football, me, him, and the grandkids. And we went out and tossed for about an hour. And he said for him, it was therapy. Just throwing that ball back and forth with me, talking about girls, talking about grades, talking about whatever. He said, that meant the most to me of you just being present. Not me preaching, not me teaching, not me giving him all kinds of sage advice from one of my books, but just being a friend, tossing a ball around. And you'd be amazed how men can really connect with that and be transformed by it. Hmm. Nice. Nathan, why don't you toss out the, the last question and we'll wrap it up after that. You got it. Um, Ron, I'm, I'm just really enjoying uh, this time to, to speak yeah. with you. Um, I've got um, just one more, one more thought. Uh, it has to do with, with weary soldiers. You know, we, we all get weary. And, and um, I wonder if you could um, offer some words of encouragement for men who are who are staying at their post they're they're being faithful uh they're they're trying to do the right things in their marriage and their job as fathers uh they're you know they're fixing the washing machine when it breaks they're taking care of the car but we we all get weary and uh and i just wonder what we could um what we could hold on to, you know, when, when we are just feeling tired. Uh, number one, being tired is allowed. Mm. Being tired is okay. Being tired is normal. Even God, after six days of creation, took a seventh day to say, I'm done. I need a rest. Mm -hmm. Jesus many times would get away to rest. Men we get so involved in serving other people. We forget about ourselves. My son, again, uh, named Christopher, uh, he's a father of twins. He's a military officer. He's getting his master's in cybersecurity. And he called me and he said, Dad, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm burned out. I'm tired. I'm super dad. I'm super husband. And I said, okay, what are you doing for you? Nothing. I said, I said, son, when I was there with you, we took a walk together, me and you and the grandkids. And we went to an ocean wall, a seawall. And I saw uh, about six people taking a scuba diving class and going out to scuba dive. I said, son, you love swimming. You love the ocean. So as your father, I'm giving you a mandate. Be selfish. <laughs> and I want you to focus on something that's just for you. Nobody else, not the kids, not the wife, not the church, but you. And I said, would you, for me, go get certified as a scuba diver and go out and scuba dive? Hmm. And, and I held him accountable to it. I said, so when are you going? So I called him that day. He signed up. He went through all the classes, loved every second of it. Learned, oh, he loved it. And then he sent me a video on his first dive with his team. 
it changed his life. He had an outlet. Hmm. He had a place to go and just get lost with God himself and look at the fauna and look the fish, the turtles. Every man must find his scuba. <laughs> Every man has to be a little selfish because I played football. I work out in the gym and the trainer will tell you the resting time is just as important as the lifting time. Hmm. Recovery is just as important as action. And so men have to, whether it's golfing, whether it is, excuse me, sorry, whether it is hunting, fishing, but I, 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 I demand out of men in one area of your life, be a little selfish, focus on a hobby that you love and that restores you, that ministers to you, that uplifts you, that heals you and do it because the devil don't care how he gets you. If you burn out, he's happy. If you rust out, he's happy. He doesn't care. So self-care for men is something we do not really do well. So even going for a walk with the dog or go, taking swimming lessons, or but do something for you is critical for restoration. Mm, that's good. Nice. Thank you, Ron, for spending some time with us. Ron Archer and his latest book, The Power of One Man. I'm actually looking at it on um, Amazon, available, looks like February 16. Yes. Um, this is this is a topic that we are in desperate need of as men and particularly as, as Christian men. Thanks for putting the time and the effort into well, this. Well, well, one quick honest thing I'm going to tell you. Um, uh, I, I do a lot of scuba diving and stuff and my feet get really ragged and my wife hates it. So I'm in Florida and I'll be seeing her tomorrow. So because my wife loves smooth skin, I'm getting a, 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 a manicure and a pedicure. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is what I've been doing talking to you because when I see her, she loves a smooth touch and it's healthy for me as well uh, for my years of playing football. So I'm taking time out for me, which I would never do, but I learned the value. Nice. You know, I have, I have uh, diabetes and so I got to take care of my feet. And so I've learned to self-care. I would never, in the past, you couldn't drag me to get a, a pedicure. Are you kidding me? Middle men don't get pedicures, you know? <laughs> but I've learned the value of self-care. That's a good word right there. All right. Well, we're so glad you joined us for another episode of the Parenting Pathway podcast. There's much more to be found on parentingpathway.org. There are many more podcasts, many more blogs, and I wanted to offer brisket to everyone who Ooh, logs on. I love brisket. But they tell me there was some kind of technical issue that I, I, I don't understand all this digital stuff, but they, they told me they couldn't, they couldn't do it. So, but the blogs and the podcasts are equally good and helpful, even without the brisket. So thank you for joining us again today. And remember, don't do parenting and don't do life alone. Amen to that.